0: glad you could be here to uh worship with us and to hear uh from god's word this morning and as always you know please take time to fill out that comment card um, and let us know how we can pray for you it is uh, definitely a blessing uh to hear these requests to hear these praises uh to pray about these uh, concerns that you might have um and see how god works and it, it is it is a joy um to share that those these burdens um with you so Please keep doing that and put it in the offering box uh, so we can receive those. Um, before we begin, I do want to make a uh, mention about the outline. Uh, once again, I, uh, I made a change after I told uh, Ronnie what was the outline. Uh, main point one and main point three, just uh, swap those. It just changed uh, the order of them. Um, so the third point is now the first point. The first point is now the last point um, for today's Uh, Message. And today we are talking about uh, verses being used out of context. This is our last week in our spontaneous um, spring break series uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be going back, um, Lord willing, uh, back into the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, next week to continue our journey uh, through that. Um, We we started with financial stewardship, went to the theology of worship. We talked about the significance of Scripture last week, and now we're going to pull out some examples of how people, uh, especially believers, will misuse uh, the text of Scripture, and we're going to work through a process that ultimately why I hope that we gain from here is it's not so much that these are the verses that people misuse but primarily, how should I look at a text? How should I look at a verse that I see on social media or that's tweeted or that looks pretty on a poster? How should I really evaluate how to use this uh, verse, this text? So understanding God's word rightly is necessary for effective use. Uh, The video there made a good example of that. Misunderstanding God's word could lead to some grave consequences. Um, we talk about how Scripture is living, but that does not mean that Scripture has many interpretations or many meanings, that I should ask you on anything, what does this mean to you? And you come up with whatever meaning you want about that text. But rather what it means is, is that the author, at the time of the writing, had a specific intention, a, 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 um, a specific principle that he was trying to relay to God's people, and, and then that there are varying applications in how that Uh, works into our own lives. And today we are going to look at some popular verses that are misused and abused by non-believers and uh, and believers alike. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 18, uh, 20, uh, Philippians 4, 13, and Jeremiah 29, 11. And please understand, each of these verses I have misused, I have abused at some point at least once in my own walk. Uh, With God. Um, So I have been guilty of this, and I I thank God that He has corrected me. He has rebuked me uh, through other brothers and sisters in Christ and helping me understand uh, His word uh, properly um, and effectively. So let's talk about why verses are usually misused. Often it's a lack of knowledge and understanding of the context, Um, it's due to reading the Bible as if it's a collection of tweets, especially in this day and age. Um, especially millennials, we get, rather than reading a news article, we'll get all the information that we want uh, from the headline or from the caption. So we'll look at scripture and we'll look at verses in the same manner. That's just a collection of, of, of tweets or little snippets, and we won't actually read the book for what it is, which is a collection of books and letters written as books and letters and meant to be read as books and letters. And this all pertains to the reader having what's called a a humaneutic, a bad homoeutic, And a humaneutic uh, is just a, a fancy word that describes a method or a, a means of which we interpret the text, in which we discover the meaning of the text. And in, these, in our humaneutic, uh, that leads us to a bad understanding of Scripture, there are some common missteps. One is always thinking that the text is about you, right? That the text is about you. That whatever the verse is, it's about you. Whatever the story is, it's about you, A good example of this is David and Goliath. There are churches out there, especially the prosperity churches out there. You are David. You can slay Goliath. No, you're not. You're not David. You're the Israelites. You're cowering in fear. Goliath is sin that we cannot conquer, and we need somebody, i.e., the son of David, Jesus Christ, to conquer that problem of sin for us, thus allowing us to chase after the Philistines, thus being able to live in victory after the son of David has gained us that victory that's just one example of how we like to read ourselves into the text. We like to be the hero when all texts points to Jesus Christ, not to us. All of it points to Jesus. Another misstep is ignoring the genre of the book or the letter that you're reading. Is it a narrative? Is it poetry? Is it wisdom? Is it prophetic or apocalyptic like revelation, which in a way makes it hard to understand sometimes which part is imagery, which part is literal? It can be challenging. Gospels are a combination of narrative, biographical genre that proclaims good news. The epistles are straight-up letters with specific people that they're addressing to, with specific context, with a context and a specific purpose. Sometimes we confuse a text to be prescriptive, rather descriptive, or we think it's descriptive when it's prescriptive, meaning does the text tell us how it happened, just how it happened, or does it tell us how we should act as well? the book of Acts, is full of descriptive texts as well as some prescriptive texts. We stumble when we read our feelings or beliefs into the text to find its meaning. This is called eisegesis. Eisegesis is when we read the meaning into the text, when we come to the text already with a a prejudice or a bias, um, and we read into our feelings into the text to glean what it means, versus exegesis, which exegesis is we pull from the text what it means and apart from our feelings. Uh, One example of this is in Romans 7 where, where Paul says, I do what I do not want to do or for I want to do good but I cannot do it. Most people, a lot of people look at that text like he's talking about Christian experience. That's me. And You might be right on that, possibly. Exegetically, I think Paul's talking pre-conversion. He's talking about his experience under the law, looking at the context of, of Romans and where it falls, and Paul elsewhere says that you don't have to sin. We're free from that. We can give our members our instruments for works of righteousness, no longer to unrighteousness. But many of us, the people who think that is a Christian experience, the main reason they think that is not because of the contextual data that's before them, but rather because they can relate to it. And they're like, you know, that's me. I really relate to that. That's eisegesis. That's reading our feelings into the text. We often misstep when we don't know the context, um, which in all three of our examples today, we're going to see that. That's going to be the big main misstep of most bad hermeneutics: is just a lack of understanding of the context. But some other popular ones, which we're not going to dive into heavy. Um, one is Matthew 7.1, which we talked about, do not judge. If you keep reading in that uh, story uh, that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that we still have to deal with a speck in our brother's eyes. So the judgment part is still there. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. That's usually like the only part of the verse that people cite. But when you keep reading this, the good happens to those who love God and have been called by God, and the good is actually being glorified, being transformed into the image of his Son. The good is not a Cadillac, a job promotion, or some keen understanding of life. Or end of James 2.13, universalists, people who believe that uh, hell isn't eternal, that uh, that everyone will be saved eventually, love to use the end of James 2.13, where James writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a a great example of pulling the text from its context. Uh, What James is talking about here, this judgment, every time the word judgment is used, does not mean it's talking about the final day of judgment. He's talking about judgment among brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And lastly, a common misstep is not recognizing the cultural, historical, or even the geographical divide that exists between us and the time the text was written or the location the text was written. An example, Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, where Jesus talks about, I'd rather you be hot or cold and lukewarm, we oftentimes, we see what well, Jesus is talking about, our spiritual fervor. He wants us to be either hot for him on fire or just cold and distant. But that's not what he's talking about here. See, Laodicea, we have to recognize the location here. Uh, Colosse and uh, Heropolis were two cities that um, had water. Laodicea didn't have water. It was a trade city primarily because of roads, not because of water. So it had to have water piped in. Uh, Caropolis had hot water, which is good for medicinal purposes, and uh, Colossae had cold water, which is refreshing and good for the spirit. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was, in effect, outside of the purpose of hydration, useless. And that's what Jesus is saying, that you have barren works. You aren't producing fruit, and you need to be fruitful, or rather you be useful, either hot or cold. Um, So that's the connection there. But if we don't know that, and we just look at the text— then yeah, I could see how we would start applying, well, he must mean he rather wants us to be passionate for him or cold and distant. But when we look at the teachings of Jesus and Matthew, as we've discussed, remember, there is no neutral ground, right? You're either for him or you're against him. So that's the introduction part. And before we begin, before we dive into these verses, I do want to recommend a book. Um, It's called Living by the Book uh, by Howard Hendricks. If you ever want to know how to read scripture, like if you struggle with that and you just want some... Some basic tips, living by the book is an excellent resource uh, to use in understanding God's Word and being able to read it plainly um, as it is. Um, so again, that's Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. Um, and so before we begin with our, verse, for our first verse, Matthew 18, 20, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his wisdom and grace this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity for this morning to praise and worship your name. I ask that you speak to all of us, that you will give us a spirit of humility before your teaching and that your spirit will discern what we need to hear and how we ought to apply it to our lives. Help us know your truth. Help us to know your grace. Help us share that good news with all people, Father. We ask this, Father, for your glory by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Matthew 18.20 is our, our first one um, that we are going to look at. Um, and you know the main point here is you know, Jesus demands a crowd. And in Matthew 18.20, Jesus says, uh, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, when we hear 18.20, many of you uh, probably recognize the verse now that I've said it. I'm not recognizing it's from 18.20. Because it's often used uh, in the context of prayer, right? Somebody comes up before a church or maybe in a small group and, and we'll say, you know, as we pray, you know, God, you know, we're two or three gathered, there you are. And that's, that's, how it's often, that's how it's often used. The idea is that we who have gathered as brothers and sisters in the name of Christ recognize that Jesus said this. And, and so since we have gathered, Jesus is here among us. So when we look at this verse and to ass- assess Is this how it should be used? We're going to ask two questions, and these are going to be the same two questions that we ask of the other two verses. The first one is, uh, theologically, biblically, does this sound right? And the second one is, is this what the context states? So, theologically, biblically, does this sound right? Is that the idea of the verse that Jesus is teaching here? So I pose these questions. Theologically, is Jesus not with a brother or sister in Christ who is in chains in isolation for his sake? Or are they all alone because they don't have a brother or sister with them? Is Jesus not with us when we are weeping alone in our rooms in prayer? If I go for a hike by myself and a bear attacks me, can I not call on the name of Jesus for help? Or am I all alone because there's not two or three other brothers or sisters with me? Does Jesus really only show up if it's worth his time? Like a celebrity who needs a crowd to make his visit worthwhile. No, if it's only you, I need I need another one, maybe two more. But at the same time, what if we have four? Because it doesn't say Jesus doesn't say at least two or three. He just says two or three. So is four too many? The text doesn't say at least. So we have to ask ourselves, does this sound like scripture? Does this sound like who God is? And I, I think we all know it's it's not. I mean, Jesus is with us. He's omnipresent. God's omnipresent. He is with the believer who is By themselves, which is a blessing. But let's look at it contextually and see what Jesus is really saying here, what is being taught in Matthew 18. So, how do we find out? You know, in in forecasting, when I was a meteorologist, when you forecast for a local area, a good forecaster doesn't just look at the weather data in the immediate area. You have to start big picture, synoptically is what we called it, which is pretty much like the size of the United States. Look at the big picture, see what's going up at all the levels, big picture, and then you go to the mesoscale, which is the regional, and then you go to the microscale, which is the local. When we look at the context, we do the same thing. If we want to understand what 1820 is saying, we need to look, one, at the Gospel of Matthew. Actually, as well as, what does all of Scripture say? What does the Gospel of Matthew say? And where does chapter 18 fall within the Gospel of Matthew? And then, where does 1820 fall in that scheme as well? So when we talk about chapter 18, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, it starts with an argument of who is the greatest in the kingdom. And if you want to go ahead and turn there, please do, um, just because it's a good practice to look at the text, and you can, you can check me, make sure. I'm not lying up here, and I would encourage you to do that. It keeps me on my toes, knowing that you will do this as well. Not that I'm seeking to deceive you. I just, it's just encouraging. It's challenging for me anyway. So Jesus starts talking about children, right? The disciples are arguing, and Jesus talks about children, and woe to those who cause the children to stumble. And then the seriousness of sinful temptations. And then he expresses the great lengths and joys that a a person should go to in order to bring a person into the fold of God, into the kingdom. And as such, Jesus begins the topic of discipline within the body of Christ for the purpose of restoring an individual and how that looks, which he then wraps up with a parable on how deep our forgiveness should extend to one another. This is the larger context in which 1820 finds itself. And of course, 18 finds itself within the greater context of Matthew, which is ultimately about the kingdom, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is um, bringing into the world. Um, And so that's the context of 18 and 1820. But more specifically, 1820 finds itself within the context of 1520. And we will read verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, Two of you agree on earth about anything they ask. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this section ultimately is about a believer sending against another believer and how it should be handled. This is the proof text that churches get for church discipline. Step one is in verse 15, approach him or her on your own and try to reconcile it. In verse 16, we get the second step. If step one doesn't work, bring two or three others who have witnessed this behavior. It continues on. If that doesn't work in verse 17, then you bring it before the church. And then at the end of uh, 17, if that person still refuses to respond to the correction of the brothers and sisters in Christ, treat them as a non-believer. They, they obviously don't want to submit to the authority of church or the teaching of God's word, so treat them as a non-believer, as one who doesn't believe in it how does this pertain to verse 20? Well, if we keep reading, Jesus goes on in verse 18 to give us a statement about authority. He talks about if two or three agree, then the authority of heaven, more specifically the authority of Jesus, is given in this matter of correction. That's what, that's what it means by whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever authority you exercise on earth will have the authority that exists in heaven when you have two or three witnesses that agree about it. And that's what verse 20 sums it up. Verse 20 pretty much sums this up, where two or three gather in my name on this issue. There my authority is. So it's an issue of authority. And you might be asking, well, why two or three? Well, Deuteronomy 19.15, again, Matthew loves the Old Testament, and and to really understand Jesus and most of the New Testament, you need good Old Testament theology and and knowledge. And Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that for a matter to be legally established, you need two or three witnesses. And that's what Jesus is speaking to. He's like, "We have two or three on the matter, it's been established in my authority, the authority of heaven, the Father's authority is exercised here on earth in his kingdom, in the church. So that is what is meant by where two or three are gathered in my name. That's the proper usage of 1820. So now understanding that, What do we do? Well, I would encourage you not to use it at the start of prayer, unless that prayer has to do with church discipline. Then you are appealing to the authority of Jesus. That is an appropriate time to use it. But at the same time, if you hear somebody use that verse in prayer, don't stop the prayer and be like, well, that's out of context. Don't do that. It's not the time or or, or the place. This verse, when taken out of context, I think is a low-risk verse. Um, Should it be corrected at some point? Yes, absolutely, but not during the prayer, and maybe not even right after the prayer. Maybe, like right now, when we're kind of doing it, you know, I'm not really pointing out a specific incident or anything like that, though I have many in my head, we're just doing it now, kind of generally. Just proper teaching of the word should correct it over time. Now, what do I mean by low-risk? I think the harm of misusing this verse is minimal. The theology behind it, the application on it, it's not going to lead anyone down some false gospel, or believing in health and wealth, or word of faith. Nothing that's heretical. Um, it's just a, a bad use of scripture. And it could potentially, if somebody was up here, if a pastor is preaching, if you don't have two or three, you ain't going to get to know Jesus, or your prayer is ineffective. That's bad teaching. That should be corrected. That, I mean, that is heresy. I've never heard it used that way. I suppose it could be. Um, but if it's just used like in prayer, just it's, not, it's low risk, not too big of a deal. Now, these two examples, though, I have corrected people on the spot because I think these next two examples, Philippians 4.13, Jeremiah 29 11, when misused, are dangerous, and they are used to um, continue to um, teach and encourage health and wealth and word of faith movements. Um, so I would correct somebody, on the spot when they misuse this for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ. So Philippians 4.13, we all know this verse, I, I think. Many of us have seen it. We see it on TV all the time with athletes. It's, it's, this is the um, inspirational, I can do anything, anything I want, I can do through Christ who strengthens me. Um, I had like, you know, Tim Tebow, he's got the little eye things on there. And uh, Steph Curry is known for this. And then, of course, you got Paul in prison writing this verse to kind of give you some background. I'm sure Paul was thinking about uh, these two stars flashing, I can do all things through Christ strength. strengthens me. When he was in prison, anyway, I'm jumping ahead. We'll talk about that. So where do we see this often used? Sports, right? Motivating posters. Um, Christian athletic apparel, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things, right? In the gym when you're lifting weights, I'm going to bench 225 because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever your dream is, go do it. You want to win that championship? You want to be MVP? You can do it because Jesus says you can. And you can do it through him. And this goes along with um, the teaching. Well, let's ask ourselves the question first. Does this sound theologically and biblically correct? Does scripture, especially Paul, in his letters, teach that whatever we aspire to do, We can do it as long as it's in Christ, whatever that means. Is Paul saying, as Joel Olstein once said, most people tend to magnify their limitations, they focus on their shortcomings. But Scripture makes it plain all things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It is possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It is possible to overcome that obstacle. It is possible to climb to new heights. It is possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it all takes place. You may not have a plan. But all you have to know is that if God said you can, you can. Now, Olstein, of course, he's, I'm not afraid to say, he's a false teacher, he's a heretic. But the thing is, many other believers have grasped onto Philippians 4.13 as a battle cry to overcome adversity Athletic competitions, other situations where the person is seeking a certain kind of blessing or a certain prosperity. And this is, in fact, one of the reasons I correct people because it is often used by health and wealth teachers and proponents and prosperity teachers, those of the Word of Faith movement like Stephen Furtick and other false teachers of false gospels. 413 does contain the gospel, gospel message, absolutely, the correct gospel message, and we'll talk about that in a moment when it's properly understood. But in order for us to understand it properly, let's look at the context. Let's look at the letter of Philippians first. It's, it's a letter. It's an epistle, just another fancy word for letter. And it's also referred to as a prison epistle. Why? Because Paul's in prison writing Philippians. He, he's, he's in prison, and we know this because he tells us in chapter 1. Now imagine the common view of Philippians 4.13 and think, is this what Paul had in mind while writing in prison? Now, let's look at the immediate context. We're going to start at 10. Verse 11, though, will probably be enough. But going to 10 is really the start of the section, and we'll read through uh, 13. It's not on the screen behind me. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice the breadth of the situations that Paul covers here. He's talking about being in poverty. He's talking about being in abundance and being fully blessed and having no needs. And he's saying, in all these situations, even the one that I am in now, I'm content. I'm happy. I'm good. Because he's learned to do so through Christ Jesus. And this flows with the whole message of the epistle. Uh, It especially falls in line with the key verse in Philippians 121, where Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, 413 is about being content in any and all situations. You lose that MVP, you lose that championship, you're content. You're fine. You don't need it. You never needed it because in all things, in all situations, Christ strengthens you and you have Christ. And fully knowing, fully understanding this, this is the gospel here, right? That Christ is with us regardless and he will sustain us and keep us faithful even when we feel like we can no longer endure the situation that we're in when we're tired of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, whether it's our own doing or other people's doing, or life just sucks because we live in a fallen world and there are things outside of our control, we're content because we can do all things. We can endure all things because of Christ. Because the good news ultimately should bring us to this point of contentment. And it should give us a joy that this world can never rob us of, nor can the world ever give us. So when you see 413 on TV or on some fancy poster or some dude at the gym working out, ask yourself, are you content with your life? Is Christ all you need? Do you really need your favorite athlete or team to succeed? Do you really need that promotion or that relationship? Are you content in all things because of Christ who lives in you? So that's Philippians 4.13, and we'll move on now to our final one, perhaps the most widely known verse, I think maybe out of the three, Jeremiah 29.11, Prosperity for me. And this is a verse, we, I, I, I kind of hate to admit this, but we have this hanging up in our, our office here, and I can remember like, the first week I asked Ronnie, um, if that was hers or not. And I asked her that because I was kind of profiling her. Um, and she told me she thinks there's a hole behind it. So I embraced it. I'm like, that's good. We, we can use it to block the hole. Um, and I've known people who've had, had this tattooed on their bodies, um, and I've corrected them in their understanding of it. So that's an awkward conversation to have. Um, but Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, how is this often and often used and understood? Well, this verse loves to go on cards for celebrations, for graduations, right? You're graduating high schools. God has a plan for you, for your welfare, for your own well-being, for your prosperity, and not to harm you. And He's going to give you hope, right? You got a future. It's often used oddly enough, which I think is unfortunate sometimes for those grieving, those who are suffering. Um, it's a way to try to encourage them. Uh, I have seen it on, uh, at a youth district um, before. Uh, they had thank you cards for disabled veterans that the youth were filling out. This was the verse that was on there. Think about that. A disabled veteran, missing a limb, struggling with PTSD, who knows what, gets a card. It's well intended. But it's telling them, God has plans for you not to harm you, for your prosperity, for your own good. He has, wouldn't you be thinking, where was he before? Because clearly, I've suffered harm. Where was he then? Now you're telling me that he's going to, it's really not a good way to use it, but unfortunately, that's how some people use it, because it sounds encouraging, doesn't it? Man, God has plans for you, a future and a hope for your own good, not to, no evil involved, no suffering and some people just use the first part of the verse and not the second part. If the Lord knows, if the Lord declares, I know the plans I have for you. They use just that part as if that's okay. You're taking that part of the verse out of context versus the whole verse out of context. So let's look at this verse theologically and biblically. Does it sound correct in accordance with the rest of scripture? And I think if we break this verse down in three portions, it will help us kind of wrestle with this. Does God have a plan for us? yes. Absolutely. He desires that we be saved and transformed into the image of his son as we seek and do his will. That's clear through all of scripture. Do these plans, however, keep us from evil, calamity, suffering, harm, and do they guarantee our prosperity? If we look at scripture as a whole, regardless of the book, the prophet, or apostle, or Jesus himself, we find that's clearly not true. When we look at what prophet did not suffer harm, did not struggle with the idea of suffering, was not rejected. Jesus was rejected. I I mean, clearly that part does not fit with Scripture or with any theology that's rooted in Scripture. Do these plans involve a hope? Well, yes. I mean, the eternal hope of Jesus Christ, absolutely. Which in eternity we can look towards no harm and suffering. In that aspect, yes. So in, in that regard, there is a hope right in the old testament was always pointing to jesus uh, israel is always awaiting the arrival of the messiah in this awaited hope this promised hope so yeah that that part sounds right so most of it kind of kind of sounds good but is this verse addressed to us to begin with and do most people when they cite jeremiah 29:11 are they thinking about eternal salvation and the promise of everlasting life in my experience, I've never seen nor have I heard it used in that way to point to people to the promise of the, of the gospel, to the promise of who Jesus is. And if that is the intent, why would we use Jeremiah 29, 11 and not the plethora of other verses that teach that this hope is specifically addressed to all saints of the church? Now, you might be wondering, well, why are we posing this question? Well, let's look at the context and that will answer it contextually speaking, to whom is this verse addressing and what is the situation? If we back up just one verse to 10, it starts to clear things up. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years, all right, we got a time condition here, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, a location, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So, if you want to use this verse, you've got to be living in Babylon, and you've got to wait 70 years. You've got to wait for the 70 years time to be completed. You meet those two conditions, along with some more that we're going to talk about here, then maybe you can start to use this verse about your life. So this promise of God, stated in verse 11, will happen after our conditions met, one of time and location. But when we back up more and we look at the start of 29, we are told that these words are, one, a part of a letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to a specific people, the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So for this verse to be addressed to you, Nebuchadnezzar, who, who's not living anymore, has to take you into exile, into Babylon, for this to be addressing to you. We're even told by whom the letter was sent, the hand of Alasa, the son of Shaphan and uh, Gemariah, Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah. So, clearly, this verse one—it's it's not about anyone here, but beyond that, it's not about any one individual either. It's not—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a promise that's given to a, a community, to a, a nation of people, specifically that of Israel. We Americans—we love reading scripture, thinking that all the verses, if they're not about us, they are about some generic individual. But not really. Sometimes God's talking about his people, his church as a whole, or the nation of Israel as a whole. And when we look at the verses that follow 29 11, we find that there are more conditions, that these plans for them, this hope will come only after they seek him, after the nation of Israel turns back to God and they pray to him and they worship him. Only then will God gather them back to fulfill the plans of welfare, welfare and not harm, and a future with a hope, a hope that is ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. So what's the big deal excuse me, about this verse if it's misused? Well, anytime we take a verse out of its context and misuse it, it shows a lack of concern for what the text actually means. To an unbelieving world, this sticks out to the cynics and skeptics of God's word who often know the word of God more so than most believers, when they look at believers who should be revering God's word as sacred, yet they toss around his word like loose change, what does that say about how we value his word? And ultimately, what does that say about the God whom we claim to believe? Second, this verse is commonly used by false teachers to promote health and wealth. Even if you don't promote the health and wealth gospel, especially in this day and age, you do so when you misuse this verse outside of its context. And I would say that any time you quote this verse outside of its context of God's everlasting and enduring love for the nation of Israel in this time of history and in the promised hope of the coming Messiah and all that that idea entails in regard to eternity, you're misusing the verse. We have all of scripture to talk about the plans that God has for us in his son. The New Testament is full of verses about this, about what the will of God is for our lives and what we can expect and the kind of hope that he has for us and that he has given us in his son. And and if you're wondering, to sum it up, the plan God has for our lives is that we deny ourselves, that we give up our dreams and passions, and that we exchange them for his will, his glory, his plans, and to endure all things necessary for his work to be completed through us, which more than likely will include evil and harm coming to us for his sake. And we do so so that we may glorify him and enjoy him forever. Again, it's not about us. It's about him. It's about him and what he has done for his glory, for his purposes. I do think Jeremiah twenty nine eleven 11 does point to Christ. I do. I think all the Old Testament does. Um, and especially on this side of the resurrection, we can look back to 29.11 and be like, that hope for Israel is Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, nine times out of ten, 29.11 is used to point to ourselves. It's used to point to a fading, perishable hope of something tangible on this side of, the, on this side of eternity before Christ comes and truly wipes away every tear. So we've gone through these verses, and maybe for some of you, you're like, yep, or maybe it's new to you. Maybe you're wrestling with this. Maybe you're wondering why we did this at all. A, a rightful and proper understanding of God's word helps us to live out Romans 12, 1, 2 where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we don't know the word of God properly, in its proper context, we cannot renew our mind effectively, and we cannot discern what is the will of God. Thus, it makes it more challenging for us to know what is good and acceptable and perfect. This also allows us to live out 2 Timothy 2.15. We briefly spoke about it last week, where Paul writes, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Last week when I spoke about how all you need, what you should focus on when you're reading scripture, is just reading. I think all three of these verses, if you just read, just read, You'd figure out what they mean. I don't think anything I've given has been deep or like, oh, wow, that's mind blowing. Like, if we read the context, quite often, though, we don't visit the context enough. And if we just swim, if we just dive into scripture on a regular basis and just reading it, just getting those words in our heads, this would all come together, I think, rather easily. Again, it's just like a puzzle. Keep looking at those pieces, you keep looking at the big picture. And you start figuring out where those pieces go. Just over time, they become more and more familiar and you see all the details. Thankfully, God is patient with us as he has been patient with me, continues to be patient with me. I still learn things about God's word that I once, sometimes when I prepare sermons, I'll go to a verse, intending to pull it for my purpose. And then because God has continued to ta- teach me his word, I'm like, oh, I misused that last time. And that happens. But I'm, I'm growing. The issue is What do I do now? Do I keep teaching that false idea of scripture or or do I use it appropriately? I, I use it appropriately. I allow God to grow me. That's how I know Christ more. That's how I know him more and find more joy. So God's patient with us. Likewise, we should be patient with each other. And we have each other for the purpose of correction. Not just each other, but we have all the saints have gone before us, all of church history, all the theologians, all the pastors before us whom we can read, access, and see how they understood God's word to help us to understand. And this grace and mercy is in part why we celebrate communion, which we are going to enter into uh, at this moment. Uh, So if uh, some elders and deacons want to come up here to help, that would be um, excellent. Here at Hope Community, um, we practice uh, open communion, so if you are a believer in Christ, you are welcome to partake of the elements. Um, if you are not a believer in Christ, just pass the plate. There is no shame in that, and in fact, it is for your own well-being to pass the plate. As Paul tells us that before we come to God, we should only partake of the elements if we profess Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, and that we have confessed our sins to him and into one another. We're not holding um, anything uh, from our brothers or sisters um, in Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, bless uh, the elements, then we'll pass um, the cup, and then we'll pass, no, we're going to pass the the bread, and then we're going to pass the cup. Last time, I did it backwards, so this time we're going to (laughs) do the the bread, and then we'll do the cup, and with each element, uh, we'll take it together. I'll read a little bit from scripture, we'll take it, and then we'll um, repeat the process for the cup. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your willingness to reveal who you are, not just only in your word, but in your son, Jesus Christ, that we may know the word who is flesh, recognizing, understanding that he is at your right hand right now, Father. Thank you for this moment of of communion, this being able to come to the table, to sit at this table, Father, to engage in fellowship, communion with your son, all because of the blood that he has shed, the life that he lived, his willingness to be a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins and being willing to take upon himself the wrath and judgment rightfully reserved for us, Father. But by your grace and your will, you have made a way through him. Thank you for that, Father. Help us recognize the gravity of that, the depth of that. Help us recognize the depth of your holiness and the depth of our sins in contrast. Bring us to our knees, Father. Bring us to our faces before you. And in doing so, Father, let us recognize the joy that exists in that grace, in that truth, knowing that we can go with confidence boldly into your presence, into the throne room as a child of God, asking whatever we wish, for you are generous with your wisdom. You are generous with your mercy, and you will give without reprimand, Father. Help us confess our sins to us, make our sins known to us, and help us glorify you as we speak into one another's lives, as we extend this grace to others, to those who may have hurt us. Father, help us forgive them. Give us that strength. Help us seek forgiveness from those whom we know we have hurt or have offended. Continue to draw us to you through your Son and the power of the Spirit in your word. Help us abide by your teachings, by your commandments. Help us continue to cling to this truth and cling to unity, not at the sake of of your gospel, but through the gospel and through your truth and through the grace that is presented there, Father. Help us remain as one. Help us be the light within West Salem that you've called us to be. Be with us in the weeks and months ahead as we transition into our next destination. Give us wisdom there. Give us peace. Give us discernment, Father. Help us do so in faith, completely in faith, and in confidence that it is in, it's in accordance to your will, Father. And that regardless of the financial or the logistical concerns, Father, that we focus on what you want best for your body here, I hope. Because this is your body. It's not mine. It's no one's yours. It's yours. It belongs to your son, of whom he is the head. And as we partake these elements, Father, bless us. We need it desperately. And we thank you for it, Father, and continue to help us walk rightly in your truth, full of grace. We ask all this, Father, for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name by the blood of Jesus Christ.